The farmer has to cultivate his field. He has to plow it up. The farmer has to plant the seed. He needs to fertilize it. He needs to tend it. He needs to care for it. And he does all those things. But unless God sends the sunshine, unless God sends the rain, nothing is going to grow. And the reverse is true as well. God can send the rain. God can send all the sunshine he likes. But if the farmer lays back saying, well, you know, I'm a monergist. I don't, I don't really believe in cooperation. And so I'm not going to till, till my field. I'm not going to cultivate. I'm not going to do anything. God has to do it all. Well, nothing's going to grow. This is how it is in the natural world. And what I want to insist here is this is how it is in the spiritual world as well and in our spiritual lives. Hello and welcome to another brackish episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. I'm Matt Swaim, Director of Outreach for the Coming Home Network. I was a, generally speaking, a Wesleyan fellow. Uh, Ken Hensley is Director of Pastoral Care. He was a Baptist pastor. Kenny Burchard is Director of Development, and he was a Foursquare pastor in sort of the Pentecostal realm. And here we all are in the Catholic Church, and On the Journey is this show where we talk about well, how that came to be and how we think of things now that we're Catholic and yep. what's different, what's the same. You can find more episodes, including episodes in this particular series, which is on holiness and happiness and our ultimate goal as Christians, uh, by going to chnetwork.org slash on the journey. You can also, by the way, join our online community full of people who are all asking these questions together. Some of them are Catholic and some of them are thinking about becoming Catholic. It's a great spot. Uh, that's community.chnetwork.org. And we encourage you to support this show by making a gift, and especially a monthly gift through our Compass program. If you do that, if you go to chnetwork.org slash compass and enter the code OTJ3141, we'll send you a copy of Marcus Grody's book, What Must I Do to Be Saved, which is extremely pertinent to the conversation we've been having during this series. So again, that's chnetwork.org slash compass. Enter OTJ3141 when you sign up for any kind of monthly gift. So... Gentlemen, you ready to talk more about how to be holy? <laughs> I'm ready for Ken yeah. to teach us how to be holy. Teach me your ways, oh, Kenneth. <laughs> teach us. Of the House of Hensley. Yeah, and can you quit wasting my time? <laughs> Lead the way. Lead the way to holiness, Ken. Ch chattering about our background and who we were. No, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> Um, this series, which we have, to, which I titled "Turning from Idols to Serve the Living God," from First Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine. Uh, this series that we're doing is a series on how we grow as Christians, the doctrine of sanctification, and we're discussing this as Catholics. That is, how do we now that we are Catholic? How do how do we understand? the path or the process by which we are transformed back into the perfect image and likeness of Christ from one degree of glory to another, as uh, St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. That's what we're talking about. All right. And I want to begin by quoting once again from the Catholic, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 27, because I think that this just basically sums up 
encapsulates everything we had to say in terms of theological presuppositions uh, before launching into the more practical aspects of the of this study. Here's the catechism. The desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. Okay? We have been created by God. We have been created in God's image and likeness. And because of that, we are made for God, as it says here, created by God and made for God. And he's written, uh, the, the desire for God is written into our very hearts so that we will never find the truth, we'll never find the happiness that we never stop searching for, as Pascal taught us, except in God, that is in restored relationship with our maker and in becoming who God created us to be, okay? That is where we started. Oh, wait, one more thing. Sin is about us taking this desire that we have for God and attaching it to something else. That, that's what leads us astray. We're attaching it to something in this world, and we begin to live for something else in this world, maybe money, maybe passion, maybe adventure, maybe sex. This is what leads us to disobey God. And so the path back to obedience and the path to being changed into his likeness is the path of fixing that desire that we have back on God and keeping it there. Anything else, gentlemen, before we move on? You know, this is all pretty basic textbook Christianity, the way that you're describing it so far. I mean, I'm pretty sure that mm -hmm. anybody who's who might write nasty comments to us later, at least they're with us to this point, if they are a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord. That's right. That's right. For sure. Okay. Okay. Last week, then, what we did was, following the story of the exodus of the children of Israel from their enslavement in Egypt, we began to discuss the practical steps that we need to take to be delivered from our bondage to idols, um, unhealthy attachments, addictions, all of these things that keep us from finding our deepest happiness in God. And, and I want to move over that again just very quickly. Step one we found is this, deliverance begins with prayer. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, we read the account of Moses at the burning bush. This is where deliverance began for the people of Israel. This is what we read. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their taskmasters, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land, out of that land, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And it's the same for us. Deliverance begins with prayer. Again, every Christian listening can affirm that without blinking. I mean, this is this is basic textbook, bare bones level Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. All of us, all of us, I think here on, on the screen would say, you know, in our own lives, um, there came a moment in, in our lives where, where God moved on our hearts and we cried out to God in some way. We, we would all say that that's how the story began for us in some way. There yeah. was this very similar experience, you know. Of yeah, saying, happened yeah, to me like save me. three or four times last week alone. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened to me three or four times today. <laughs> you know, and as they say, as they say in AA, if if you're not crying out, I mean, if you don't realize I'm lost and you're not crying out, then you haven't hit rock bottom. You're not ready to be changed, really. And so that that's an important point to make. 
Deliverance for us begins with prayer. Okay, step two, having come to clarity on this issue, that is that only God can deliver us, we must step out in an act of faith, doing whatever it is God's asking us to do. We have to step out. Okay, for the Israelites, this was the Passover. God said through Moses, slaughter the lamb, spread its blood over the doorposts of your of your homes, cook the lamb, sit down with sandals on your feet, girt, I mean, you know, your loins girt for traveling, you know, ready to go basically at a moment's notice and eat the lamb. And this is the this is the lesson that I get. Only God can deliver us. Okay, we know that. And God wants to deliver us. That is from whatever it is that holds us in chains and keeps us from being whom God who God has created us to be and who we want to be in Christ, okay? God wants to deliver us, but God wants to draw us into the process. He wants us to cooperate with the work of his grace, his power, his spirit within us by trusting him and stepping out in faith, doing what he calls us to do. As soon as I say that, I always think of the blind, the man blind from birth who Jesus says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus is always giving people something to do, an act of faith, the step out walking in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, so to speak, okay? We have to do something. This is how God has designed things to work in the natural world. And we see this everywhere. The farmer, I mean, I know you're not a farmer, Kenny, Matt, you're not a farmer, I'm not a farmer, but I know enough to know this. The farmer has to cultivate his field. He has to plow it up. The farmer has to plant the seed. He needs to fertilize it. He needs to tend it. He needs to care for it. And he does all those things. But unless God sends the sunshine, unless God sends the rain, nothing is going to grow. And the reverse is true as well. God can send the rain. God can send all the sunshine he likes. But if the farmer lays back saying, well, you know, I'm a monergist. I don't, I don't really believe in cooperation. And so I'm not going to till, till my field. I'm not going to cultivate. I'm not going to do anything. God has to do it all. Well, nothing's going to grow. This is how it is in the natural world. And what I want to insist here is this is how it is in the spiritual world as well and in our spiritual lives. As St. Paul wrote, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Cooperation is the word. And this is a key to understanding the entire spiritual life. I see you wanting to say something, Kenny Burchard. <laughs> My, the Pentecostal in me wants to just pull out a hanky and start waving it right now. Um, but I will say, you know, just in terms of this, uh, by the way, waving your hanky, that, that means you agree with what's being said in case you wonder. Okay. But, but, uh, you know, when you, you throw out the word monergism or monergist, you know, and, and so we have these theological words and concepts that we use to try to explain what we mean by things. And what you're doing here is you're saying, in the biblical story, when God saves his people, part of the way he saves them is by inviting them to cooperate with him in their own salvation um, and, and to do something. You know, one of the scriptures I always heard when I was a young Christian from the monergist crowd, mo monergism, by the way, monos ergas, two Greek words, one works, is was Jonah chapter two, verse nine, salvation is of the Lord. And they'd say, see, only only God is, is, is working in the whole process of salvation. He's the mm -hmm. only one that works, because if we work, then we're being saved by our works. And so this whole system 
of theology that says that what we do isn't integral to the process of being saved has developed in many non-Catholic traditions. Synergism, on the other hand, which is something that Matt and I both ultimately landed in in terms of what we believed, um, soon ergas are the two Greek words, with workers. So you have one working in monergism and with workers, soon ergas, in this synergistic way, that we are working together with God who is saving us. It's God who's saving us. It's like God brought the people out of the land of Egypt, but they had to leave. They had to walk. They had to, you know, have the Passover. They had to, and this is the word, the Catholic word is cooperate. And the Catholic phrase is cooperate with grace or with the grace of God. And you see this all through the New Testament. Um, it's, uh, it, it, I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. We, it says, are laborers together with God. Well, guess what? That's a sunergas is in there. We're God's co-laborers. And even in the way that he works in the, in my life, um, uh, Ken, in your life, uh, Ken and Matt, he works through people who are working with him. So for instance, in, um, second Corinthians chapter five, verse 20, it says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were beseeching you by us. Uh, mm -hmm. We pray on Christ said, ye be reconciled to God. So it just, it's, it's the biblical way of thinking. And when, when God saves, Amen. he does it, but we have to cooperate. And if I could just refer people to, uh, I mean, rather than, we're only spending like five minutes on it here as step two, right? Uh, cooperating with God as an act of faith. Uh, as step two in this process. But if you want to go watch 17 hours of discussion on this very topic, we did a series uh, that uh, Ken and I worked on very early on. It's one of the first series we did on the, on the journey called A Damning System of Works Righteousness and how uh, this pattern of cooperation with God is actually throughout the Old and New Testaments. That's, by the way, episodes 17 through 34. So I'm not kidding when I say it's 17 hours of stuff in case you're you know troubled that we didn't spend much time on it here. You can go find some stuff. Well, thank you for that advertisement, Matthew. Thank you. Okay, step one then. No, thank you. So step one, it begins with prayer. Prayer. That's the foundation of the spiritual life. Step two is that we need to step out in faith and do whatever it is God is calling us to do. Step three. What is step three then? Okay, back to the story of the Exodus because we're using the story of Israel and the Exodus as our as the type and shadow of what is fulfilled in the new covenant. The Israelites prayed, step one, God heard their prayer. The Israelites sacrificed the Passover lamb, and they spread the blood, and they ate the lamb, step two. What happened next? What comes next in the story? Well, it was the crossing of the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 and 22, I'll read. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night, the Lord drove. Okay, there's synergism. I just noticed right there, right? Moses stretched out his hand. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea on dry land and with a wall of water on their right and on their left, the Egyptians pursued them. And all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea, and we all know what happened to them. Okay, so we know the facts, gentlemen, the story of the Red Sea crossing. We know what happened, but I want to ask a, a slightly different question. What 
is the meaning of this event. And here's how I understand the meaning of the Israelites' crossing of the Red Sea. I believe that the crossing of the Red Sea represents that point at which a decisive break is made with their past. Okay, this is the moment when their slave masters, Pharaoh, all of his horsemen, the chariots, his armies, when they are destroyed and the Israelites leave behind forever Egypt and their life and their lives as slaves in Egypt. In other words, for the Israelites, the way I see it, the Red Sea was the door from one world into another, from a life of slavery to a life of freedom. And guess what? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, St. Paul refers to this event as the Israelites' baptism, their baptism into Moses. I'm quoting, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, now, don't cut, cut, don't cut, in, don't cut in on me here, guys. Here I'm stuttering like a, like a madman, but that's because I want you to watch what's going to happen now, okay? Watch what's coming up because we're moving towards step three. So the children of Israel are baptized into Moses in the crossing of the Red Sea. This was a type of something greater to come. Because even though they were baptized, even though they were baptized into Moses in the, you know, even though this decisive break was made and God later gave them his law written on tablets of stone, by and large, we know that the hearts of the Israelites were not changed. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses looks ahead to a time when, and I'm quoting now, when the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, in order that you may live. Now, this little quotation that is read, it comes from a speech of Moses standing in the plains of Moab as they were about to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. So, so, so God led them through the Red Sea at the beginning of their 40 years of experience in the wilderness. And even at the end of that experience, Moses is able to say, hey, listen, one day the Lord your God is going to circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring so that you will be able to love the Lord your God with all your heart. It hadn't happened yet, okay? So this is Moses' promise of the future. And as we move forward through the history of Israel in the Old Testament and we begin to read the prophets, we begin to find the prophets speaking more and more of this future time when God is going to make a new covenant with his people, and, and he's going to do for his people something that hadn't been done yet. Okay, the classic passage on that is Jeremiah 31. I have to read a couple of passages to you to fill this out, but stick with me, guys. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
No longer shall they teach each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, I want you to notice here, notice that the new covenant that God promises in in Jeremiah here, that he will make with his people one day, it's not going to be like the old covenant. It won't be like the old, where the law was given to the children of Israel on tablets of stone and which they broke. Instead, when the new covenant comes, God promises to change the very hearts of his people and to write his law on their hearts. Okay, so we're asking, though, how will this happen, though? You know, when will this happen and how will it happen? One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, which I think I've probably quoted 15 times over the course of 125, 124 episodes of On the Journey with Matt and Ken, is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, where we read some of the most amazing words in the Bible. Again, the context here is the new covenant, a promise of the new covenant. God is speaking through Ezekiel of what he promises to do when the new covenant is instituted. And this is what he says. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols, all your idols, I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of your flesh, the heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. And I want you to notice, according to this passage in Ezekiel, when God sprinkles clean water upon his people, when that day comes, they will be cleansed from their sins, their hearts of stone will be removed and replaced with hearts that are pliable, open to God. God will put his spirit within them. He will come to indwell them and to move them from the inside, they will become temples of the Holy Spirit, as Paul tells us in the New Testament. They will become temples of the Holy Spirit. And the result, well, we just heard it. The result, according to Ezekiel, is that God's people will have the ability and they will have the motivation now to live the commandments of God. I will put my spirit within you, God says through Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, to be careful to observe my ordinances. This will happen when God sprinkles clean water on them. And when will that happen? Through baptism. Which brings us to step three. Let me just state it and I, I'm, I want to hear from you, gentlemen. Step three is this. We must trust that in our baptism, we were given the grace of deliverance. The typology of the Red Sea was fulfilled in our baptism. And according to the new covenant promises, we have the power now to throw away our idols, to discard our addictive behaviors, and to live in freedom with God. That's step three. You know, as you're saying this, well, first of all, uh, you may have quoted that passage from Ezekiel about the stony heart being replaced with a heart of flesh 15 times on in on the journey with Matt and Ken. I think you've only quoted it like four times so far on, on the journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. 
So uh, get some <laughs> okay. catching up to do. Got to even out the scorecard. But, you know, when you were saying that God's people will have the ability and the motivation to live the commandments of God, I'm like, you're just saying that's a roundabout way of saying they'll have the grace, <laughs> right? They'll yeah. have the grace to do it. I mean, this is a it, this gives us a, an opportunity, I think, to talk about and we should probably just do a whole series on this down the road how Catholics understand grace differently than than I think any of us understood it in our particular traditions. I mean, I often understood grace as in, well, by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own. Grace is the thing that gets you to heaven and keeps you from going to hell. I didn't necessarily think of grace as the thing that helped me to resist sin on a daily basis or, you know, yeah. brought blessing and favor in my life just in general, small and little ways. But that's the way the Catholic Church talks about it, right? And there's real grace active here in the sacrament of baptism that is in the in in baptism is most like what i used to believe about grace in general as a wesleyan hmm. mm-hmm. and that's great what i'm thinking is that that's that is good matt and what i'm thinking just to add to it there is you know i think about this phrase that uh, the founder of of uh, the coming home network marcus grody uses and we kind of adopt it verses i never saw before and of course i saw them but i didn't think of them as a Catholic would have thought of them. And, you know, this whole mm-hmm. matrix that you just laid out, Ken, where we, where, where we call on the name of the Lord and then we participate and cooperate with God's grace, right? Those first two steps. And then third, we receive baptism. This is a cluster of things that belong together that, that initiate and, and begin us along this journey into holiness. And one of the verses that I never saw before that has all of those things bound up in it is in Acts chapter 22, where Paul is sharing one of the many, many times he talks about his conversion, or one of the many times where his conversion is presented uh, in the Bible. And in Acts chapter 22, it says uh, that Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, Paul saying, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And then here's the kicker, verse 16. Here's your your cluster. And... Now, why do you wait, rise, Mm -hmm. be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name? And all of these things belong together. Yes, yes, yes. Calling on the name of the Lord. We rise up. We take our, we cross the Red Sea. You know, like this is the way God saves people um, in, in the Bible. And so it shouldn't be a surprise, you know, as Catholics that he just, uh, fulfill, fills that up, fulfills it all the way in Jesus, the way he's been saving people f- from, um, you know, uh, as far back as, as scripture takes us is the same way. It's just filled up in Christ. Can I just double down on that idea of the verses I never saw? Because there's one that actually hit me this morning that I'd never seen that lines up with this thing correctly and uh, perfectly. And I'm going to get into some ecclesiology here in a little bit, because I think that's also an important part of the conversation. But in Acts 2.38, uh, when mm-hmm. Peter's preaching the most famous and archetypical sermon of all time, and as Ken, that's you mentioned— That's the Pentecostal it, greasy page. That's, that's right, exactly. That's like, page. That sucker is so dog-eared. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, 
by the way, our, our baptism series is episodes uh, 14 through 16. I have it uh, entered into my Palm Pilot. Um, Man, it's so great to have so, a statistician on board. Only three hours on the baptism so far. Uh, but Peter says this in this, you know, sort of like textbook Christian sermon to begin all Christian sermons. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, right? Uh, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, you want to hear the part that I never saw until this morning because I was in some co- conversation about infant baptism. Uh, Peter goes on to say, this promise is for you and for your children. <laughs> and for all who are far off, um, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So as we know, when it comes to Scripture and the way that the, the church interprets Scriptures, there's always the the sort of the prophetic meaning, but there's also the immediate meaning. So to the people who are there, it's like this is for generations to come. But also it means any kids in the house, any babies, this is for them too. Yeah. Right? It's it, In some sense, like, again, I can't believe I never saw that until literally this morning when I was having a conversation about infant baptism. I mean, it's all in there. And well, this you know what? Is, I mean, are you telling me that like when people were coming through the Red Sea, people were like, well, the babies can't uh, consent to come through the Red Sea. So uh, they, they just have leave to them wait in Egypt the age until, they're mature, until they're mature enough to make the decision for themselves. <laughs> Let's leave them in Egypt. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, listen. Um, well, I'm lost. No, I'm not lost. All right. <laughs> Okay, I want to emphasize something. I want to emphasize how beautifully, really, the prophecies of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and Ezekiel 36, and there are more. Ezekiel 11 has something similar. How beautifully these are fulfilled in the new covenant instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ in his body and his blood fulfilled in the sacrament of baptism. Okay, again, remember, Mm. we're following the pattern of Israel because Israel in the Exodus, this is is God's, uh, it even says in Ezekiel that Israel was God's lesson book to the nations. This is the lesson book. They cried out in their slavery and God heard them. They stepped out in faith and did what God gave them to do, just like the man born blind. When Jesus said, go down and wash in the pool of Siloam, he did it. If he had just sat there, and said, no, you know, I, I believe in just, I, I believe in healing by faith alone. I'm not going to go dip in the water. You know, that would have been a problem. All right. He trusted and he went and did it. And then thirdly, the Israelites were led through the Red Sea, where this decisive break was made with their past. They left Egypt, slaves, they crossed the Red Sea, and they were free men and women of God, under God, Pharaoh his horses, his horsemen, the chariots, everything having been drowned in the Red Sea. Now, again, I want to emphasize all these prophecies Then we see of how God will one day make a new covenant. And in the new covenant, all of these patterns of the Old Testament, these typolo- the typology is going to be fulfilled in Christ in the new covenant. Listen to what St. Paul says in Romans 6. And this passage is packed. And listen, when I say listen to what St. Paul says, I mean, I mean it in this case, you know, as we speak to you about what it takes to grow in grace and knowledge and be transformed. This is not Ken Hensley saying it. You can take Ken Hensley and you can throw him into the wood chipper, you know, like that movie Fargo. You can throw Ken Hensley into the trash. Listen to what St. Paul is saying to you, okay? What shall we say then? Romans chapter six. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus 
were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, unless someone is thinking, oh yeah, Paul is saying we will be able to walk in newness of life once we're resurrected. He's not referring to now. He's not talking to people in the here and now. Listen to what he says. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed, that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. And again, is he just talking about the future? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not yield, present tense, active verb in the Greek, do not yield your members to sin. In fact, it's an imperative. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life and your members as and, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. He's talking present tense. What do you men hear in this passage from Paul? Okay, can I go first on this so that uh, Kenny go. can have time to get to get his hanky uh, to wave because he's going <laughs> to. All right. So here's the thing. Uh, when we when we first started uh, brainstorming this series, uh, I thought it was going to be a series about Calvinism, and it's Calvinist adjacent, I suppose. Like. And so we could talk about how there's it's impossible to reconcile a passage like this with the idea um, of once saved, always saved, because Paul doesn't say, you know, he's talking to baptized people. He doesn't say, you who are in sin need to be baptized. He's saying, you who are baptized need to stop sinning, <laughs> right? So he's clearly saying that. But Kenny, I don't know what your understanding was, because Ken was in the Reformed camp, but you and I are Wesleyan holiness. Uh, well, I mean, I was more in the holiness side than you were, but we were on the Wesleyan side yeah. of things. Uh, we believed in free will. We believe you could absolutely lose your salvation. But um, I don't know about you. Mm -hmm. I didn't believe that baptism necessarily did anything. I believed that it was a show of faith to the congregation, that I was starting things are starting to get serious with me and my walk with Christ. I believe that yeah. you became a part of the family of God by saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a savior, right? But that's not what Paul says here. This is a different view of things than I had. And again, under the verses I never saw, Paul doesn't say, um, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you know, not know that all of us who accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior made a promise that we were going to follow him? No, Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And he goes on to say, he doesn't say, we accepted Christ as our Savior so that we might walk in newness of life. Paul st says instead, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, that we might walk in newness of life. Your view of yeah. baptism, my view of baptism, the idea of it's a way to testify to the congregation that you're serious about your mm -hmm. Christianity now and that you're trying to like live an adult faith uh, you know, with more intention. I don't find that take on baptism anywhere in the Bible. You know what I do find in the Bible? We were buried. We died. <laughs> we have come back to life. Baptism yeah. did that. It was the mechanism. Like it, like it really happened. And, I, and I'm kind of with you. I think probably in the early stages, guys, I, I thought of baptism the way that you often hear it presented, that it's an outward, um, it's my way of telling God, yes, I'll follow Jesus. And of course it's that, but it's so much more. I mean, in the New Testament, Paul says, 
in the book of Galatians, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And when I was pastoring and I taught the baptism class, um, I asked the class, what happens when we're baptized? And and I came later to think of of things in more of a Catholic way as I as I went along. And this verse is one that I read often. I said I would say to those in the class, when you are baptized, you are marked by God. And I even came to see baptism, if you will, as the opposite of this this image of taking the mark of the beast, you know, in, in Revelation. Like our baptism is our mark of the the mark of the Lamb, you know, it's the mark of the the death, burial, resurrection, and cruciform um, um, commitment that we're making to Jesus. It's it's like it's a real thing, and Paul uses the language of putting on Jesus, you know, as uh, as what happens when we're baptized, and um, and so yeah, that's that's what I hear when I when I hear this text in Paul. Uh, something real you know, for, happens when we're baptized. For for me as a preacher, as a Baptist pastor and a preacher, I remember when the thought came to me, you know what? Why is it that I would never have talked about baptism like Paul does here? Why, why is it that I would never, you know, without a bunch of, you know, a bunch of provisos around the corner and all, you know, uh, you know I would never stand the in the pulpit and say, don't you know that when you were baptized, you died with Christ and so that you could walk in newness of life? I, I would never have said that. That's what got me going. Okay, there's a lot in this passage in Romans. Uh, some, some, some of it may be a little bit complicated and hard to understand, but this much comes through with crystal clarity. Just as the Israelites' baptism into Moses marked this hard line, this division between their past life as slaves and their future life now as free men and women under God. So when we were baptized, Paul is at minimum saying this, a hard line was drawn when we were baptized. God worked within us a deep work such that the power of sin must have been at some fundamental level broken in our lives because otherwise he would not be able to say to us, walk free. Do not offer the you know the 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 members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but as but instruments of righteousness and as slaves of God. So we can walk in newness of life. Paul's saying we can yield the members of our bodies to God. In the language of Saint Peter, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Second Peter one verse three. Okay, now we've said a lot. Let me roll forward here. The point that we're making here that the three of us have made, I believe is so crucial. And the reason it's so crucial is that many of those listening to this lesson today, and I would have to say, including us who are listening to the lesson and even giving the lesson, we're tempted so often to say, no, I have taken the desire that is written into my soul, my desire for God, and I have attached that desire to something else and I'm in bondage, and I cannot break free. I'm addicted to pornography. Or I'm, I've, I've attached that desire to money, and I can't break free. All I think about all day long is money, and that's all I care about. And I cannot break free, or whatever it is. I simply cannot break with the idol that I've given myself over to serve. I'm enslaved. I'm stuck. 
many of us are going to feel this way. And I do, and I want to make this point and make it very powerfully that I understand. In fact, to tell you how much I understand, I would have to do full confession right here during this lesson, which I won't do. <laughs> Especially, <laughs> you know, Matt if, sometimes brings a priest along with him wherever he goes. He doesn't <laughs> seem to have one today, but but <laughs> you know, fresh out. You can't confess over uh, over the internet anyway. So sorry, Ken. True. No. Okay. Not that that stops a lot of people, but okay. Well, what I'm saying here is yes, I understand how that feels especially if we have de developed patterns of behavior in our lives, patterns of sin, patterns of addiction, of, of unhealthy attachments, idolatry, spiritual adultery, all these images that we've used. If we've developed these patterns in our lives over a great period of time, it is going to feel to us like we're stuck and we cannot walk free. Mm. But it's critical to our sanctification, is what I want to say, is that we fix our minds on this truth, the truth expressed in Ezekiel 36, Romans chapter 6, 2 Peter chapter 1, Jeremiah 31. It's, in, it's, it's imperative that we fix our minds on this truth, no matter how we feel, in our baptism, by God's grace, we were changed we died a death to sin and we were reborn to a life of freedom and, and goodness and holiness. The power of sin at some deep fundamental foundational level in our lives was broken and we have the ability by the spirit that indwells within us that is moving us, as Ezekiel said, causing us to walk in accordance with God's commandments. We have the ability to walk in newness of life. And I think this is something that Paul explicitly states in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, a passage of scripture that every one of us here ought to memorize. It's where Paul says, no temptation has seized you, has overtaken you, except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. When Paul says here, that no temptation overtakes us except what is common and that God will always provide a way out. He is saying, I mean, he's, it's implicit, but he is saying basically that we do not have to, that, that I do not have to give myself over to any temptation that comes. I don't have to. Yeah, no, that's great stuff uh, for so many reasons. You know, in this, you know, I'm brainstorming like 30 on the journeys as we're doing this. We need to do one on the church, right? <laughs> and and what is the church and how do we think of that um, before? But this is so much easier to understand this concept of God giving you the grace, the, the way to provide a way out so that you can stand up under temptation if you have a concept of the church. Uh, so just a note here on baptism and ecclesiology. <laughs> and I don't want to go too far down this path, but it's it's something that helps me understand what Paul's saying so much better. Um, so baptism makes us children of God, but it also makes us members of the body of Christ, the church. Um, circumcision put the children of Abraham personally, individually into covenant with God, but it also made them part of the covenant people of Israel. Uh, and I'm sure that there was a spectrum of people who left Egypt. Some were good, some were bad, you know, some were really intelligent, you know, some maybe like did a better job of praying the prayers, uh, 
some maybe not so not so much um but it's clear to be saved that they at least had to go through the red sea with the family the family was going through the red sea mm-hmm. and you already mentioned the earlier part of 1 Corinthians 10 uh, and we're still in 1 Corinthians 10 with this verse um as an image that Paul uses for baptism and there were probably like i say even a few scoundrels in the mix who made it through the red sea but it was clear that if you wanted to be saved you had to be in that group going through the red sea with Moses and not back there with the idols and the need for obedience and perseverance is there throughout the time in the desert. And there are things that God gives people in the desert, the manna, the quail, <laughs> water from the rock, mm-hmm. to kind of like steer them back and remind him who he is and help them, you know, refocus that, their priorities. But none of that happens if you don't go through the Red Sea with your people. Um, and that's an image that, that again, is used every time we baptize somebody in the Catholic Church. We, we bring up the Red Sea image. In the same way, when it comes to that temptation, when it comes to that struggle, we're not meant to fight it alone with sheer willpower any more than an individual Israelite could take a look at the Red Sea and say, you know what? I think I can swim this. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> There's, I feel like the ecclesiology part of this is so important. The strength comes from God, and he gave us a family in which to live this out, um, to fortify us in grace, That's good. And to walk with us, and to help us back up when we fall. I think that for me, when I read this passage as a Christian evangelical kid with uh, you know whatever struggles I was going through at any phase, and thinking that it's me and Jesus in my Bible and saying, God will not let me be tempted beyond what I can bear, and there will always be a way provided under it. It was just me in my own headspace saying, okay, how do I like really, really let God in, right? As opposed to being part of a family, the church, walking through the Red Sea together with them, eating the manna with them, getting water from the rock with them. It's one of the things I also love about um, if you ever have a chance to go to a a, a baptism, uh, a mass where baptism is, is offered, uh, or being done, where the sacrament of, of baptism is being done with the whole congregation. One of the things we do uh, at, at St. John's is um, our pastor says, uh, you know, parents and godparents and the whole congregation, let us uh, renew our baptismal vows. And he'll say, do you renounce Satan? I do. Right. You know, and all and all his empty promises or, you know, I do. Do you believe in God? I do. And so, yeah, it's not willpower and it's, you know, I'm not by myself. I'm with the community. And, and this, this, um, way of sanctification and holiness as it relates to baptism from a Catholic perspective is that we regularly return to our baptismal vows and those baptismal sacramental grace realities throughout our entire life. This is part of the way we walk in holiness. Okay, we've been reflecting on some passages of the Bible that touch on the effects of baptism, what it actually does to us. And I, I want to just comment here that this has been the church's view from the beginning. Here's what two of the greatest church historians tell us about the early church's teaching on baptism. First, I'm reading from J.N.D. Kelly's classic work, Early Christian Doctrines. Listen to what he says. From the beginning... Baptism was a universally accepted rite of admission into the church. As regards its significance, it was always held to convey the remission of sins. It is that washing with living water, which alone can cleanse penitence, and which, being a baptism with the Holy Spirit, thank Jeremiah, thank Ezekiel, thank all, thank Paul, 
is to be contrasted with Jewish washings. It is a spiritual rite replacing circumcision, the unique doorway to the remission of sins. Okay, it's the new covenant fulfillment, he's saying, of circumcision. And then here's one more. This is from the great Lutheran historian, Yale historian, Yaroslav Pelikan, in his work, The Emergence of the Catholic Tradition. He, in fact, summarizes the early church's teaching on baptism by looking at Tertullian's treatise on baptism, which was the first ever written in Christian history. And he says this, from Tertullian's treatise, we learn that four basic gifts are given in, in baptism, the remission of sins, deliverance from death, regeneration, and the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. So this was the teaching of the early church from the beginning. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to read some excerpts from the catechism to kind of bring this thing to, toward a close, um, just so you can hear some of the words of the catechism of the Catholic Church as it reflects on baptism, our beliefs about baptism, the effects of baptism, what baptism does. And I'd like to ask Kenny if he would read these, because I'm tired of hearing my own voice. Would you read these <laughs> the, these quotations for us, and we can you know comment as Absolutely. necessary? Thanks. Absolutely. And if, if you have a catechism, you, you can open it up now. And if you don't, you can, you can uh, even just type these references into Google, and they'll pop up for you. So this is uh, the first one, guys, is uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, CCC, if you're Googling it, paragraph 1262 and 1263. It says this, The two principal effects of baptism are purification from sins and new birth in the Holy Spirit. By baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. In those who have been reborn by baptism, nothing remains that would impede their entry into the kingdom of God. Beautiful. The next one is paragraph 1265, the very next paragraph. Baptism not only purifies from sins, but also makes the neophyte a new creature, an adopted son of God, who has become a partaker of the divine nature, a member of Christ and a co-heir with him, and a temple of the Holy Spirit. Right there, guys, there, there, there's a couple more to read, but right there I'm, I'm thinking, uh, I, I spent some time thinking about other early church voices. And I think, for instance, of um, St. Augustine. He has a sermon from the book of Ephesians called uh, On Marriage and Concupiscence. And he talks about what you referenced a second ago, Ken, uh, the washing by water, which is a reference uh, to the, the book of Ephesians chapter 5, washing by water with the word. And here's what Augustine says. He says, By the same bath of regeneration and water of sanctification, all sins of the redeemed are cleansed and healed. Not only those which are pardoned at this time in baptism, but also those that are subsequently contracted by human infirmity and ignorance. Close quote. So, in other words, um, the catechism echoing uh, what St. Augustine says, interpreting what the New Testament says. Let me read a couple more, though, guys. Here's paragraph 1266 or 1266. The most holy trinity 
gives the baptized sanctifying grace, the grace of justification, enabling them to believe in God, to hope in him, and to love him through the theological virtues, giving them the power to live and act under the prompting of the Holy Spirit through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, allowing them to grow in goodness through the moral virtues. The next paragraph, 1267. Baptism makes us members of the body of Christ. Baptism incorporates us into the church. From the baptismal fonts is born the one people of God of the new covenant, which transcends all the natural or human limits of nations, cultures, races, and sexes. Quote, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Yeah, that and takes us finally, straight back. That takes us straight back to Matt's comments a few minutes ago about incorporation into the church. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, you're part of a body. Yeah, Moses didn't lead the best Israelites out. He led the family of God out. <laughs> and then finally, uh, uh, paragraph 1268, 1268, quote, The baptized have become living stones to be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. By baptism, they share in the priesthood of Christ, in his prophetic and royal mission. They are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that they may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Baptism gives a share in the common priesthood of all believers. See, and these quotations, I hear Deuteronomy 30, I hear Moses there, I hear Jeremiah, I hear Ezekiel, I hear Paul in Romans 6. So much comes together. This is so beautifully uh, summarized in these quotations from the Catechism. Yeah, I love it uh, too. And and again, you know, as you as you read this, somebody might say, "So you're saying that a baptized Catholic is you know good to go forever?" And no, that's absolutely not what we're saying. It's certainly not what happened if you're looking at the children of Israel as an example of how this works, right? Because uh, they didn't right. go. Not all right. the people who came out through the Red Sea ended up in the Promised Land. <laughs> Actually, most of right, the people who right. came out through the Red Sea didn't make it to the promised land, right? I mean, Joshua did. Uh, uh, he was one of a handful, <laughs> right? So this doesn't. This is not some guarantee that you're going to persevere as you know, right. as president in Calvinism. But it is a guarantee that you have been brought into the family. If you can, if you want to, you know, weasel your way out of it, that's on you. But God has put His right. mark on you. Yeah, and okay. the other thing that the, so good. The other thing the catechism is saying here, guys, is baptism does something. It's it's like you will not find in the catechism language of, well, you know, it just kind of echoes this thing that might be, you know, no, it really happens that when you are baptized, these things take place, and that is powerful, powerful stuff. Okay, let me draw this to conclusion here. Um, what have we learned so far about the practical steps involved in sanctification and the process of our being, I quote again from 2 Corinthians 3.18, being changed into his likeness from one stage, one degree of glory to another. Step one, deliverance begins with prayer. And, and this is not a one-time event. It's not like we pray once and then we move on to other things, something else. No. Prayer will remain the starting point every day. Because every day we begin again. We begin again. We begin to begin to begin again. 
Step two, having come to clarity that we cannot deliver ourselves, that it's God alone who can save us and deliver us, we must step out in an act of faith. We must step out in an act of faith, doing whatever it is that God gives us to do. For the Israelites, it was this, it was the Passover. For us, what is it going to be? For the man born blind, it was go down to the pool of Siloam. For Naaman, the Syrian general, it was go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan. God is going to give us something to do. And even in AA, I'm talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, it works this way. You cry out to God that you can't deliver yourself, but then you have to step out. No one goes to AA and says, okay, well, I've cried out to God and now I'm just going to continue, you know, drinking or whatever it is. I'm just going to continue in whatever addiction I'm in. No, you step out. You have to stop. Now, you may fall and you will fall and have to come back again and again, but you've got to cry out to God. Prayer is first. And secondly, you have to step out in an act of faith and do what God is calling you to do. And then step three, we must trust that in our baptism, we were given the grace of deliverance. We have the power now. Not because we have the power. We have the power now because God has given us the grace of deliverance, because God has changed us, because God has given us the Holy Spirit to enable us, to move us, to motivate us to walk in his ways. So we have the power now to throw away our idols, to discard our addictive behaviors, and to live in the freedom of God. All right, so what's step four? Gentlemen, what comes next? Don't answer that question, all right? We'll, <laughs> we'll get into that, that next week. What was step four for the Israelites? What is step four for us? We'll look at that next week. Well, and the last thing I want to say here is that you've been speaking a lot about the idea of breaking the chains of addiction, but the grace of baptism is not just for that, right? The grace of baptism is for all the weird surprise sins that might pop up, you know, as like opportunities to make the make the wrong decision and turn away in a hundred different ways uh, throughout the course of a day, a thousand different ways, right? That grace is there to, I mean, I can't tell you how often I'm just like, Lord, I'm going to need you right now. It's kind of like that whack-a-mole game in life that, like you said, you're just sitting here and an idol just pops its head up and then another one pops you're its head up and another idol. one. Yeah, all these potential <laughs> idols. Something shiny over here, you know. The thing I'm thinking at the end here, guys, is a is a, a couple of scriptures and maybe even a little bit of a of a chorus and you know two texts that we didn't read that I just think can are so connected to what you shared here today. Titus chapter three, verse five, verse five. says, "He saved us by the bath of rebirth." This is how it's worded in the New American Bible. The bath He saved mm -hmm. us by the bath of rebirth. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3:21 it says baptism which saves you now is not uh is it it is not a removal of dirt from the body but an appeal to God for a clear conscience and uh through the rex, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the, the the New Testament authors can't get away from what you've shared with us today which is mm -hmm. baptism is integral to the process of becoming the holy people of God, and it really does accomplish something. And then I, th I was thinking, you know, maybe of a song that Matt and I sang a lot in our churches, but you didn't sing in yours at all, Ken. It's called "Trust and Obey." <laughs> he probably sang it. it. He just didn't. He just didn't, like <laughs> any good Calvinist. It. He 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 explained okay, it a okay. lot. <laughs> yeah, he spent a lot of but time the, the, explaining the, the why chorus. it didn't really mean to trust and obey. 
(laughs) The chorus is simple. It says this, trust and obey for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus, right? This is how we started to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. So, well, I can think of a song that actually Ken probably didn't sing. uh, That was an altar call song in your churches and mine, which is I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Amen. I'm speaking, to my Cal- <laughs> I'm speaking to my Calvinist friends out there who are wagging their heads and saying, these former Arminians do not understand Calvinism. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to go off on it. Whoever said I was a it. former Arminian, man. You, you were, you I'm were. I'm a current. I'm a Listen. current Arminian. <laughs> so for the sake of my Calvinist friends sitting out there, Yes, I understood that to be happy in Jesus, we must trust and obey. Everyone believes that, and I believed it as well. And yeah, I decided to follow Jesus. Now, I may have believed that God, out of the blue, you know, sovereignly regenerated me and gave me the desire to follow him. And that's, and I desired, meaning after I was regenerated, then I did it. I, I might have had a different way of understanding it, but Calvinists would agree with both those, and they could sing both those songs, and I have to say that. Well, I, well, let me just say that the way I would sing it differently now is I don't I don't think I would be arrogant enough to say I have decided to follow Jesus anymore. I would maybe phrase it like I have agreed to follow Jesus. Maybe that would be a little <laughs> bit more accurate. Or you would sing it, or you, or you would sing it after the fashion of Aaron Neville. <laughs> <laughs> no. And no. with that, and with that, with that wraps that. up for this episode of On the Journey. Before we torture you any further, remember uh, to check us out at chnetwork.org for previous episodes, if you can bear it. And uh, also, if you want to be part of our online community where we hang out and have conversations with people from all kinds of backgrounds beyond just Reformed and Arminian. And there's people from all kinds of backgrounds in there having these kinds of conversations about these kinds of questions. Community.chnetwork.org for that. And again, these episodes are made possible. We've gotten more than 10 dozen episodes out and it's mostly because of some generous people who want to make sure you have as much stuff uh, available to you for as free as possible. These generous supporters want you uh, to, to be able to continue to access, access this stuff. If you want to join that family of supporters and maybe be a monthly donor to the Coming Home Network, please go to chnetwork.org compass and if you enter the code OTJ3141 when you make that gift, we'll send you a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, What Must I Do to Be Saved, which basically... It's a shorter version of what we're doing over hours and hours of On the Journey. So please do consider chnetwork.org slash compass. Enter OTJ3141 when you make that gift. Ken Hensley, Kenny Burchard, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Okay. Peace.